Welcome to the High Income Business Writing Podcast, helping you propel your writing business to a whole new level. And now, here's your host, Ed Gandia. Hey there, thank you for joining me for episode 114 of the High Income Business Writing Podcast. My name is Ed Gandia, and this is the podcast for business writers and copywriters who want to take their writing businesses to the six-figure level or the part-time equivalent. As a quick reminder, you can find the detailed show notes to this episode by going to b2blauncher.com forward slash episode 114. And if you've been following me for a while, you probably understand and know that I am a student of success. I love to study success as much as I enjoy studying failure. And I love to look for patterns because there are patterns. Success and failure both leave clues. And there's a pattern I've seen in virtually every freelance success story out there. In fact, I see this in almost every business success story. But, you know, since I study freelance success, it's one of those things that becomes very apparent in pretty much every story. And it goes something like this is you begin to move steadily in the direction of your goals. And by that, I mean whether you're launching or you're trying to grow or you're trying to take your business to the next level or you're trying to pivot. It doesn't matter. It's all the same. You're moving in a new, scary direction. All kinds of serendipitous events begin to happen. Now, quick side note. When I say begin to move steadily in that direction, I don't mean casual activity. I mean steady, deliberate persistent and laser focused action even when you don't feel like it and even when you think all hope is lost now of course those synchronicities don't always happen immediately i mean if they did we'd have you know everyone would succeed you know, with very little effort and they're not always obvious you know many times you have to wait and look back in fact as you look back at your success That's when many times it all starts to make sense. And you realize that taking steady and massive action despite the odds and despite the obstacles really paid off for you. And that's why I love the story that I'm about to share with you because it's yet one more example of this fascinating pattern of success. My guest is a gentleman by the name of Robert McGuire. Robert is a journalist turned content writer and marketer and founder of McGuire Editorial, which is a content marketing agency. In in this interview, you're going to hear how one of Robert's side projects, something he refers to as a demonstration project, initially seemed like a failure. But then you're going to hear how this demonstration project ended up becoming a critical ingredient in Robert's freelance and eventually entrepreneurial success. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. So let's go straight to that interview. Robert, welcome to the show. It's good to have you here. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. I always ask my guests to give us a little bit of background before we get to the questions and the topic we're going to be discussing today. So tell us about yourself, uh, your freelance business, what type of work you do, the kind of clients you work with, and how long you've been doing this type of work. Oh, yeah. Well, how long I've been doing this type of work kind of depends on where you draw the bright lines between one phase and another. I mean, there aren't bright lines, right? So I have been making my living as a writer one way or another for over 20 years since I uh, flamed out of graduate school. 
I was planning to be an English professor and that didn't work out very well. Um, and then I, uh, got a job at a small town newspaper, um, and did, did that. I was a freelance writer. I had a career in marketing in the nonprofit world. Like a lot of writers, I was adjuncting off and on, um, when I left my job in the nonprofit world doing marketing, um, the free, to return to freelancing, I, I discovered that um, I could make more money as a freelance writer on the marketing side than on the journalism side, like a lot of people have discovered. And over the last eight or nine years, that has evolved into what I'm doing now, which is essentially running a content develop, development shop of my own where I provide marketing strategy a marketing plan, content marketing strategy and planning, uh, and then all the editorial related services. And I have a network of uh, freelance writers and editors and marketing associates who help me out with that. Um, and uh, basically, I deliver um, high value thought leadership content to my clients who are primarily in B2B um, software as a service uh, marketing. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'm curious about something you mentioned. Uh, you crossed over to the dark side from journalism. <laughs> so tell me about that transition. Is it hard? Uh, well, I, if if I had planned it, I probably would, and it, and it had taken this long, I probably been, would have been pretty frustrated um, because it took a long time. But mostly that's just because I was blindly wandering around for many years and not really sure what I was doing with myself. <laughs> So I feel like I'm just now developing my first grown-up job many years into it. Um, so it wasn't necessarily hard. I, like I said, my career in the nonprofit world, like really the only desk job or office job I've ever had for about five years was working um, at a local nonprofit, doing, uh, starting out as a marketing associate and being responsible for more and more marketing and then getting over on the program side in that work. Um, and so I had all this writing experience and I had that, uh, those few years of marketing experience. And when I left it, um, I thought, okay, well, I'll write newsletter copy and brochure copy and website copy. What back then I thought of as brochureware, it was basically putting brochures on the web. Um, and I was going to do it for nonprofits and schools and stuff because I had all these relationships in town from nonprofits. So that was kind of my client base at first was local universities and local nonprofits that I already had relationships with, and I was doing newsletters. And this, of course, like you've heard from many other people before, was long before the term content marketing was used. And it really was different from content marketing. It was it was promotion. It, um, it was not content marketing like we think of it now, where you're really giving away highly valuable information. So it wasn't really a hard switch. It was just hard to get enough um, for me to support myself. That's yeah. That's always a, the tough part at first, uh, and then of course, if you're a journalist, catching grief from your colleagues. <laughs> no, no. no, no. <laughs> so let's talk about uh, demonstration projects because I mean that's really the the topic of our uh, discussion today, and this is a really interesting concept. So, why don't you give us some background on what it is and how you ran into this idea? Yeah, well, I kind of ran into it. Uh, I, uh, it dawned on me after I did it that this is what happened to me. Um, if uh, so, it's kind of reverse engineering. How did I get on this course? When people ask me, you know, I'll run into people who I haven't seen in a couple of years, and they know me as an adjunct teacher at the local university or something, and I tell them what I'm doing, running this successful business, and they ask, "Well, how did you get there?" And the story starts with this project that I now realize, in retrospect, ended up being a demonstration project, and I always 
um, joke that as a business idea, because that was my original intention, was to start a website that would be kind of this um, self-supporting, um, what's the word I'm looking for, a business that um, was generating revenue on a recurring basis. Um, and I always joke that that, it, that as a bust, as a business idea, this was a total bust. Um, but it ended up attracting attention because it was very high quality. Um, and the attention it attracted were really the first clients of in, in what my business has become in the meantime. Interesting. So tell me about how this happened. So tell me what, what you were trying to do, <laughs> um, why you feel it failed, and then how kind of it led to some success. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I was I was reading, this was maybe three, when was this? It must be getting close to four years ago now, when MOOCs were first starting to uh, become noted in the news. And MOOCs, for anybody who hasn't yet heard the term, um, are massive open online courses. These are the free courses that are now commonly associated with places like Coursera and edX, usually offered by universities or in partnership with universities. Um, and these were new at the time. Um, and I was also, my wife and I travel a lot. Her work allows her to travel. And so I wanted to set up some kind of situation uh, where I ha was, had some kind of business that would let me travel. And I was looking around. I was seeing Pat Flynn and Corbett Barr and those folks and the advice that they had back then um, about um, self-sustaining businesses. And so I followed all of their advice except the part about finding a keyword or, or, or need or an audience that has some volume to it. So I found a keyword phrase I could dominate, but you know, that's the easy part. Anybody can dominate some keyword phrase. Um, I, I found a keyword phrase I could dominate that nobody was searching on, which was massive <laughs> open online courses, <laughs> but I was really interested in it. Um, uh, you know, as an educator and my wife works in education. And um, so I thought I'm going to start this website that has to do with MOOCs. I'm going to sort of own the space. I'm getting in early before anybody else is. I'm predicting it's going to be this huge thing and there's going to be all kinds of traffic about MOOCs. Um, and I didn't want to just be this individual blogger sounding off about them. I thought, you know, who cares what I have to say about them? Uh, so instead, I'll kind of install myself as the convener of a conversation. What I really understand now is like the managing editor of this website uh, and start inviting other authorities or other interested parties or people with interest, interesting points of view. I'll just start inviting them in and having them um, comment on MOOCs and we'll put together this kind of interesting conversation on this site that I'll operate and it'll get a lot of traffic and I'll put ads next to it and that'll be a, a business. As we now know, um, when it comes to ad supported sites, whatever traffic it is you think you need, add two or three more zeros after that. Mm. <laughs> yes. So that's why it was a bust. But it was really high quality stuff. I'm really proud of it. The site is called MOOC News and Reviews. Um, and if you go there now, it's dormant. Nothing has been posted on there for about three years. And I would, when we set up this interview, I was very comfortable having people go there. In the meantime, WordPress has updated the software, and now the site is a little bit broken. So I'm a little bit embarrassed to have people go to it. But no, that's cool because we're trying to demonstrate that this thing, at least yeah. the initial idea, broke, right? It, yeah, it, it yeah. didn't really work.
Um, so, I mean, for its, 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 its intended purpose. So we'll go yeah. ahead and link to that in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. Well, so if you go to MOOC News and Reviews now, you'll see a site that has uh, kind of somewhat amateurish but okay design circa 2013 um, that is getting stale and that um, – Parts of the the parts of the software are a little bit broken, but if you you know read some of the articles, you know I I'm really proud of them. They're still really valuable, I think, and were valuable at the time. Um, and so the field that it, it was really working in is in a, is an, a field I didn't really realize existed, which is online learning and education technology. So what's happened in the meantime, and there are all these education technology startups, this um, new vertical, not entirely new, but a growing vertical in the world of B2B software as a service. And those companies need marketing support. And they were coming to me and say, hey, instead of running this blog that's never going to go anywhere, <laughs> why don't you run our blog instead? Um, and it finally dawned on me that I had a business. Um, now, <laughs> let, let me make sure I understand. So what, did they find you because of the site? Yeah, 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 that, absolutely. It, it, it sort of proved to them that I could do it. And that's, that's sort of the argument I'm making to you, that it ended up being a demonstration project for my editorial skills. Gotcha. And I'm assuming that they didn't even question your ability or your experience, right? It, it, because you had this up there, it just yes. automatically bypassed some of these credibility issues. Yeah, yeah. There was no um, need to look at my LinkedIn page or look at any other clips or having have me send them anything else. I mean, the site itself and my name associated with it I mean, ironically, very little of my own writing was on it because, I, like I said, I was acting as the meta managing editor, um, at least proportionally. There was a lot of my writing on it, but as a, as a portion of the whole, um, it was a small share. But I was out there promoting it and, and blogging about it and doing interviews about it. And so my name kind of became associated with this new emerging online learning uh, technology. Um, and people started asking me to help them out with uh, marketing their products. So take me back to maybe that first example, that first prospect who came to you, because I'm curious to know more about how that came about, what they came to you with, how they approached you, and kind of when the light bulb went off. Yeah, well, let me talk you through two, the first two. The first one, uh, it didn't work out. It was a prospect, as you say. Uh, it, it didn't work out. It, the site had literally been live for um, – well, actually, you know, it had been live for like six weeks. We'd been uh, sort of unrolling articles one every day without promoting them so that we could kind of seed it. And then I had like an official launch date where I started pr promoting the site. And about four days later, this publishing company reaches out to me and say, we're starting a journal a serious academic journal. This is a for-profit publisher of academic journals um, on MOOCs, and we'd like your help in getting it going and editing it. Um, and they wanted to kind of take over my site by the by the material. And it's funny. I had a meeting with them, and um, they're asking me all these questions. And it occurs to me they don't realize that the site is only four days old. They think that I've been doing this forever. <laughs> They had they had seen it, you know, like the day after it launched. It's and that it, moment in the conversation <laughs> when you realize, wait a minute, they're not aware. <laughs> and um, well, we, we, that ultimately didn't work out. Um, uh, and then about probably a month later, uh, the the person, the company that became my first client, uh, approached me, and we actually ended up negotiating for probably seven months before um, we came to terms. 
because they were very early stage startup, really being bootstrapped. Um, and so I was being asked to basically um, write for free on their, basically give up what you're doing, do the same thing for us uh, for free, and you'll have a stake when we get acquired. Um, and I decided against that. Uh, and then after they were acquired and uh, had an investment, then they had a budget to actually pay for um, someone to run their blog. And that became my first client. Interesting. The, f- the first client in the model I have now, I was freelancing all this time. Yeah, so you were not depending on this generating an no. income to, no. to pay your bills. Right, right. Okay, so, uh, I mean, really not a long time from inception to actually getting a client from it in an unintended way, which I think is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So, the, and, and, and so you know, what I think now is looking back, I mean, I'm making myself sound really smart like I had this plan. It was not a plan at all. Um, but looking back, my advice to people, when I hear people talking about writing for free, you know, this is the old con in, in blogging, especially in the early days of blogging. I think most people are onto this now. Well, they'll be offered a chance to write for free and for the exposure of it. And you'll you'll see these questions on Quora or Twitter at forums for freelance writers or people asking, especially novices or younger people, should I write for this company for free? And my answer is always, you should write for free for yourself. If you're going to work for free, work for yourself for free. Um, and so the demonstra- this, this, the MOOC News and Reviews was my way of doing that. So let's talk about a little bit more about that, actually. Now that you've been able to connect those dots by looking backwards, if somebody is listening to this and going, well, I love that, but can I actually engineer this? And if I'm going to work for myself, I'm going to do something for myself, what would that look like? Now that you know what worked, can you? Is, do you think this is replicatable? And if so, what would you do? Well, um, I, I would – it's partly like a mental and attitude adjustment. And I don't want to avoid your question. I'll try and, and give some specific details. But partly it's thinking, okay – we know that learning works best through project-based learning. So, I, you know, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna work in a new field or if I'm gonna get a certain kind of gig, I need to learn X Y Z skills. Let's say it's digital marketing, for example, right? So, how are you gonna learn digital marketing? Marketing, you're gonna take these courses on these new online classes, and you should do all that. But we know that learning happens best through project-based learning. Um, so, in a way, it's kind of hacking together your own project-based learning experience. Uh, the other attitude adjustment I'm kind of recommending is um, um, you know, rem- remembering that employers or clients, in the case of uh, freelancers like us, um, they, the, the way the trend is going is they care less and less about the amount of time you're, you've had in the seat in a class, and they care more and more about what you are able to demonstrate that you can do. So anticipating that is sort of hacking together some way of teaching yourself and demonstrating that you can do things. And if you look out, um, we'll just give a few other examples of this larger trend, you know, hackathons, which, you know, writers may not be as familiar with, but these are very common in the startup world and for software designers and software engineers. You know, the point of a hackathon is not to have a product at the end of the weekend that you can sell necessarily. The point of the hackathon is to learn and to demonstrate that you can put something together. Um, And so... In a sense, I'm saying, though it might not happen in a weekend, but you're taking you're taking sort of the equivalent energy of one of these hackathons to teach yourself and to put something together. Um, 
another example out there is my friend, uh, and I met him actually through the MOOC world, is Jonathan Haber at Degree of Freedom. Um, and if you look up Degree of Freedom, it's it was this project to see if he could hack together his uh, a, a, an online learning experience um, from free resources equivalent to an undergraduate degree. And then he blogged about it. That ended, He ended up being, um, getting a book project out of it and other consulting gigs and so on. Um, and I think probably like me, that wasn't necessarily, isn't, he wasn't planning that from the beginning, but it is a very similar result that this was a demonstration project for him. Yeah, and I, and I think it's the this whole idea that if you uh, maybe pursue something based on the other thing would be passion, right? So you didn't necessarily do it based on just right. purely on passion. There was a profit motive there. Yeah. But I've seen plenty of examples where people pursue this side project and it turns into something bigger. And then that leads to the next opportunity, and that's when they pivot. Right, right, right. And the, you know, I guess the lots of people have passion projects. I, I was listening to one of your earlier um, podcasts last weekend from uh, Jennifer Gregory, and you, you guys were joking together um, about, you know, starting your own website or starting your blog or, or having a niche. I think you were talking about having a niche. And, you know, it, if your niche is, if your passion is sewing, you got to be rea- realistic about if that niche is going to be profitable to you. And the way I kind of think about the same point is you need to be strategic about the ways in which you work for free. So you sh- you should be out there doing things pro bono for nonprofits, um, but not simply as a way to network, but as a way, you know, think when, when I do stuff for nonprofits, I kind of approach them and say, let me do this project for you where I can learn and I will have something at the end that I can show my prospects and that is use valuable to to you so it's really being very strategic in how you work for free i would add that if you can figure out uh if if there are other opportunities in that organization even better meaning like uh you know are there prospects there who ed are you still there it cut out i'm not hearing you yeah can can you hear me yeah, now I can. <laughs> Sorry about that. I don't know what happened there, but so yeah, if if you find an organization where you 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 can tell that the board of directors um, uh, there there could be potential prospects for you, but you also feel passionate about what they're doing, so that's a, I mean that's a triple whammy in some cases, right? Because you could get the right. experience, potentially get in front of people who normally wouldn't have uh, met you or you wouldn't have met them, yeah, yeah, uh, and, et cetera. Right, right. And, and that's, yeah, so, if, you know, it, the more uh, birds in the hand, so to speak, or the more w- ways you can leverage that, leverage that, the better. But I think, like, even in the case of, I mean, some people, most people, including myself, and I strongly encourage this, out of, out of just uh, genuine generosity will help nonprofits that are under-resourced that will never be able to hire, hire them because they don't have resources because um, uh, they're very small. Um, and we, sh- we should all be doing that. I think that's an important way to contribute to your community. But you can, even in that case where that organization is never going to have resources to hire you, you can structure it in a way that so that you learn something yourself and you have something to show for it to prospective clients. I like that. I like that. So I'd like to get your thoughts on this, and it's related to what you just talked about. But it seems to me that as I'm thinking through this and the, the people that I know have had success with this accidentally um, – there was more to it than just I want to make more money, you know. Yeah. It, it, it there was 
I think just having that purpose, some other purpose, whether it was worthy or not, doesn't really matter. But having other goals for it other than Mm -hmm. I just want to make a killing really made the difference. And when the the people who went into it just thinking, how can I monetize this like crazy? Mm -hmm. And that's it. And they didn't care about any other aspect of it. Just didn't seem to achieve success. Yeah, yeah. And in, in I, I might be swinging too far in the other direction with you know this other project I'm working on now, Nation 1099. Um, it's just purely out of interest, and I'm self-funding it and putting a ton of time into it, and I have a lot of my team putting a lot of time into it. Um, and it's without any notion of all at all of how we're going to monetize it. <laughs> but it's just because I'm interested. I just want to. I'm curious. Um, um, to find out the stuff I'm going to find out. I'm starting to think now as we work on it, okay, now that it's kind of underway, I see a way here where I can use it to teach myself a different set of skills. Like I, what I've been doing with it so far is doing what I already know. Um, and now I'm seeing, oh, I can use this to teach myself a different set of skills and, and that's going to be useful. So tell me, that was going to be my next, actually I got two more questions for you. I definitely want to ask you about Project 1099 first and then I mm-hmm. also want to ask you a little bit more about um, your your core business, where you've mm-hmm. been able to you know bring other people in and, and leverage their expertise and their time and talents. Mm-hmm. But tell me about Project Ten Ninety Nine first. What is it? How did it yeah. come about? Yeah, uh, Nation Ten Ninety Nine. I'm sorry, Nation Ten. That's all right. Nation Ten Ninety Nine dot com. Um, this came about. I think this will. I hope this will interest your readers. It 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 was it was it came about out of my own struggles to figure out how to put together my business. Um, and what it is is uh, insight and news and advice for people who are doing project based work in the gig economy at sort of a professional skills level. So it is. And, you know, 1099 is referring to the tax forms that we all get when we're doing on project-based work as independent consultants. So it's a lot of writers, but not exclusively. It's also um, software engineers and user experience designers and management consultants, anybody who's kind of in the independent uh, contractor uh, category. And it's uh, advice for them about how to do, do better at building their own business. And what was interesting to me especially, I mean, there's all the notes and bolts stuff about operational, operating your business. Like, you know, I'm, I know you and your guests have talked about these things many times in the past, um, hiring a bookkeeper and running taxes and treating yourself professionally and how to market yourself. It has all that. Um, but what really interested me was sort of the entrepreneurial aspect of business, not just how to operate it well, but how to uh, find the underutilized or underexplored opportunity in the market, how to figure out what your unique value proposition is. I'll tell you what the real inspiration was. I was trying to figure out how do I grow my business? I was reading, you know, Harvard Business Review and the authors you see in Harvard Business Review. And all the examples in those publications are, you know, Nike and Coca-Cola and GM um, and I'm trying to apply concepts like blue ocean strategy, which was a very you know in- intriguing business concept. I'm trying to apply that to how does this, how does my friend who does the logo for my website, um, this graphic designer, how does he apply that advice? And I realized there was really no publication out there. There are lots of publications. There's a rich library of advice f- for managing small businesses and large businesses. Uh, major corporations, 
but really no library of management advice for this solopreneur. And that's where the, the idea for Nation 1099 came from. Um, so we launched it last uh, July 4 on Independence Day uh, to sort of echo that independent consulting theme that's all the way through it. Well, that's fantastic. And what kind of resources do you have there? Uh, it's all self-funded. I'm kind of uh, um, I'm using my own money, and I'm I'm, I'm um, uh, I've got a, um, an editorial assistant, Ben Shanbrom. You'll see his byline quite a bit on there. Um, uh, he helps uh, develop a lot of the existing content. He helps wrangle other guest writers and interviews. I have I have an assistant editor in my business who, for most of my client work, that you know my actual day job that I get paid for. Um, um, Sherry Shallard, and she helps out a lot, wrangling guests, authors, and interviews, and so on. And um, so I'm basically paying them to help me get the stuff up. I write a lot for it myself. I do a lot of interviews for it myself. And we try and get um, other people who are sort of passionate about this to do guest posts. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, yeah, I, I love love what you're doing with that, and we'll make sure to link to the website and in uh, the show notes. And and I definitely want to learn, and I know that wasn't a topic of the interview, but would would love to learn a little bit more about your business and how it's grown from the mm. original solo operation. So mm. you mentioned you had quite a few people. Tell us how it's set up and, and how you've been maybe managed to grow it to this level. Yeah. Well, if you if back to that or that first client um, who came to me through um, MOOC News and Reviews, I, I was hired to um, write. I had a, a set of deliverables, basically this many blog posts, this many longer assets. Um, I at, at at this early stage, I really didn't understand what content marketing was. I, I you know I was a very good writer and a very good editor. I knew how to manage the editorial process for this blog. I didn't know what content marketing was really at that early point. Um, and so I'm trying to produce all these deliverables and I realize I am underwater. I can't get it done. And my client said to me, well, why don't you, you know, you've got this contract and paying you this much money. Why don't you use some of it to hire um, a subcontractor to get help to write it? And my first response, probably like a lot of freelance writers was that's crazy. Why would I give away any of my contract to somebody else? Um, and, <laughs> and when I finally got over that and I, it was, I, it's, it's probably the single biggest, it's the single best investment I ever made, which is paying uh, a, a local college student $100 to write one of, one of the articles. <laughs> and just the idea of spending $100 out of my contract was a huge psychological shift for me. Uh, and then once I did that, I was, I, I'm like looking to spend money. I'm like, what else can I do with my contract to save me time? Because I realized how much time that saved me and allowed me to do other things, including go hustle for other clients. Um, and so it's basically set up where I work with directly with my clients to develop the content strategy. It's usually a range of very, um, in-depth and thoughtful and authoritative blog posts, eBooks, white papers, assets like that. Um, we develop the strategy, we develop the plan. I, uh, set up kind of, uh, an editorial calendar. I develop a creative brief and all of the plans of what the voice and everything's going to sound like that's really in alignment with their overall marketing strategy. And then I kind of activate this network of freelance writers I have to deliver on that editorial calendar. Oh, wow. Wow. So 
uh, it sounds like you're a really good project manager to, to be able to right, manage uh, all these resources. That I think to a lot of us, we're thinking, oh, my gosh, that sounds that sounds overwhelming. Could I manage many people? Yeah. Uh, is that something you discovered you could do well, or is that something you develop after the fact? No, well, it kind of goes back to Nation 1099. I'm not sure I am doing it well. My clients seem, seem satisfied, but it's, it feels like, I, you know, it's like um, when you're a teacher, you always – the dirty secret of being a teacher is you are always reading the lesson one day ahead of your students. And so I feel like I'm developing the necessary, necessary skills, like just immediate, just in time, you know, just immediately before they're needed. And I, I, you know, I was like anyone else out on Google trying to teach myself, how do I make an invoice? How do I uh, write up a scope of work? How do I, you know, what do I do about competing clients? Um, and what's the language I should have or what kind of agreement should I have between me and my freelance writer? So I'm desperately out there on Google trying to figure that out. And it finally dawned on me, there should be a website that answers all these questions for me. Yeah. <laughs> That's where Nation 1099 comes from. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, yeah, it's uh, – hey, I, I this is uh, – not only is it inspirational, but I think it, it shows us all that there, there's so many possibilities, so many ways to get to where you want to get to in – Many times it's not going to be the the exact path that you envision, right? So mm. we, if we try enough and we're persistent and we're strategic, we'll get to that destination. It's just the path we take many times ends up being, you know, interesting. Yeah, and yeah. proven that. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely was not planful. <laughs> I did not plan to be here. I'm trying to be more planful now, of course. <laughs> well, so. Obviously, we'll link to uh, Nation 1099 and where can uh, listeners connect with you? Where can they learn more about you? Can you give us a link to your um, kind of your main website as well? Yeah, sure. My business page, my uh, consulting firm basically for content marketing is at uh, com. Um, and there's a contact form on there, and you can reach me through that contact form. Uh, my Twitter handle is Robert W. McGuire, and uh, I'm easy enough to find on LinkedIn, of course. Robert, thank you so much for coming on. This has been fantastic. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it. The High Income Business Writing Podcast is a production of B2B Business Launcher. Learn more at b2blauncher.com.